topics in Convo this semester. Jason Sterling will be speaking on the subject of Calvinism. I kind of gave him a topic. I don't know if this is his exact title or not, but the title that I suggested to him is this, Why Obnoxious Calvinism is an Oxymoron. So he's going to talk about that subject, and of course, this is a hot topic here. It seems like we always fill up the room when there is something to do with Calvinism. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then the RUF worship team, band, ensemble, group of people will lead a couple of songs, and then Jason will speak. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to listen, to sing, to worship, to hear from you. I know there is a lot on everyone's mind, but I pray for the next few minutes you would help us to focus and to listen and that your spirit would speak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. If you've got your Bible with you, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If I sound a little congested um, and I take a couple of sips of water, that's because I've had the flu. And uh, so I'm playing hurt this morning, but I'm excited about being with you. Uh, But turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Dr. Curlin has asked me uh, to speak with you this morning about the topic of Calvinism. And I have to be honest, when he first approached me about doing this subject, I told him that given the choice, this would be the last topic that I would want to speak to you on this morning. Why? Because Calvinism or Reformed theology is my underwear, not my overcoat. And what I mean by that is Calvinism is not the flag that I am visibly waving across this campus. Jesus Christ is my banner, and He alone. But nevertheless, it's the topic that I've been given, and uh, I want to try to handle this topic this morning as graciously as possible. I need to tell you this morning... From the very beginning, that I'm not, this is not going to be a debate uh, on Calvinism versus Arminianism. This is not going to be a lecture on the five points of Calvinism. Um, It's, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach uh, from God's Word and I'm going to preach on one aspect of Calvinism, and it's the aspect that most people think of when they hear the word Calvinism, and that's predestination. Now let me pause here to define exactly what I mean when I use the term predestination. When I say predestination, I'm talking about God's choice to set His love on particular individuals before the foundation of the world so that they might inherit the blessings of Christ and His salvation. And as we're going to look at this morning, we're going to let God's Word inform us. Not our culture, not our upbringing, not our feelings or preferences, but God's Word. Because God's Word is our only authority in faith and life. 
Her name was Anya, and she was born in the Ukraine, and she was born with this grotesque, deformed face. Something similar to elephantitis, if you're familiar at all with that disease and deformity. It was so bad that she was hard to look at. No one wanted her, not even her parents, who abandoned her shortly after she was born by dropping her off at the local orphanage. Many couples would pass through the orphanage seeking to adopt a child, but they would quickly pass by little Anya for obvious reasons. After all, who, who wants a child with such a gross deformity? Statistics said that Anya would probably die in that uh, orphanage. But when all hope seemed to be lost, along came a couple from the United States. And out of all the children in the orphanage, they pick little Anya. Today, Anya sits regularly in the stands watching the University of Georgia football team practice. Why? Because her daddy is the head football coach, Mark Rick. And it's a regular sight. As soon as practice is over, out of the stands comes little Anya and she's running across the football field with joy and with delight. And she runs into her daddy's arms and he hugs her and he lifts her up playfully into the air with joy and with love. When you hear that story, what do you think of? You think of mercy, compassion, love. What if we were to tell the Apostle Paul that story? What do you think the Apostle Paul would think of? You know what the Apostle Paul would think of when he heard that story? Predestination. How do I know? Because he tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, um, please uh, follow along with me and stand in honor of God's word as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven 
and things on earth. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. Um, And Father, I stand before you very mindful of my frailty, uh, very mindful of my weakness. Um, Father, in need of help, uh, we we need you. This is a very uh, mysterious and often difficult doctrine to deal with. And so I pray that you would open up our eyes and you would give us hearts to hear what you want to say to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Can I be honest with you for a moment? Um, This is not an easy subject to talk about. It's very uh, difficult and often controversial uh, topic uh, to talk about. It's been the subject and a battleground both intellectually and theologically. It's been a battleground over the years. It's caused so much division, sadly, in the church of Jesus Christ. It has caused people to skip over whole portions in the inspired word of God. It has caused people mistakenly to go towards views of fatalism and irresponsibility that somehow our choices don't matter and that somehow we are robots. It has led other people mistakenly uh, to minimize the need for evangelism and missions. And so there's a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstanding around the doctrine of predestination. And you need to know that I can't possibly address every single issue regarding this topic in the next 15 or 20 minutes. But the fact remains, and this is what I want you to see, is that you can't get around the existence of this doctrine. If you're a Christian, you have a doctrine of predestination. You have to. It's in the scriptures. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You can't ignore it. It's in the scriptures and it's clearly in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. You know, the funny thing is about this passage is that Paul doesn't spend any time defending or debating the doctrine of predestination. He simply assumes it. And in his assumption, he lays it out as a reason, as a cause to sing praise and a cause to worship God. It's interesting, if you look at verses 3 through 14, if you have your Bible, if you look at this, if you were to look at this in the original language, which is the Greek New Testament, you would see that verses 3 through 14 is actually one sentence. It's one huge run, one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Paul is so geeked up, he's so amped up about the gospel that he can't contain himself. And so he goes on and on and on for 10 or so verses, praising God. He can't even get his breath. He is that excited about the gospel and about what God has done for him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why this message is entitled, Why an Obnoxious Calvinist is an Oxymoron. 
Because you see, rightly understood, Calvinism doesn't lead to arrogance and to pride. It doesn't lead to browbeating and to arguing and debating and sitting in the corner of the library somewhere pontificating. It doesn't lead to that. It leads to worship, as we see here in this passage. It leads to humility. It leads us to singing, to sing the praises of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of why the doctrine of predestination should lead us to sing praises to God. And i got to get a drink. I'm sorry, I, this medicine is drying me out. And I'm taking why it should lead us to sing praise to God. And if you look at verse 3 there, Paul says, Blessed be or praise be to the God and Father. Why is Paul praising? He tells us in verse 4, For God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ, Paul says, before the world began. Now, before the world begins means before any of us were born, before any of us had done anything good or bad, we were chosen in Christ. And that means that God's choosing is unconditional. Well, some of you might say, well, Jason, if what you're saying is true, then doesn't this violate a person's will? And you need to know that Calvinists believe in free will. That a person has the ability to choose whatever they wish. But you see, the problem is with the desire. You will only be able to choose that which you most desire. And it's your desires that are screwed up because of your sinful nature. Think of it this way. If I were to bring a huge, a big tiger in here... And I were to set this tiger on the stage and I were to put a huge bowl of Captain Crunch cereal on one side of the tiger. And then on the other side of the tiger, I were to put this huge carcass of deer meat. Which do you think the tiger would choose? You're right. A thousand times out of a thousand. A thousand times out of a thousand, the tiger is going to choose the meat. Does that mean the tiger is not able to eat the cereal? No, of course not. Zoologists and tiger specialists will tell you that a tiger is able to eat the cereal. But you know what? Tigers are carnivorous. And given the choice, they will always choose the meat. Romans 3 says, no one seeks God. You see, no one can choose God because no one desires God. And on your own, you would never choose God because you wouldn't desire him. Why is that? Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 3, something cosmically tragic happened. And that's the fall of mankind. And from that point forward, every single one of us, the Bible says, was born in bondage and enslaved to sin. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says it this way. The heart is deceitful, desperately sick, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? This idea of being deeply sinful is what theologians call total depravity. Now, most people misunderstand that term and they think it means that we are as wicked and as sinful as we can possibly be. But that's not what it means. Total depravity means that we are born and and sin has affected the totality of our being. It has affected our minds, it has affected our wills, and it has affected our emotions and actions. Our minds don't naturally believe in God. Our hearts don't naturally feel love for God. And our wills don't naturally submit to God. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. He says that we were born dead in our sins. And so biblically speaking, the Bible says that human beings are totally unable to come to Christ unless he opens up our hearts. God opens up our hearts and gives us faith. Why? Because spiritually speaking, we are dead. And dead people don't do anything. They don't move. They don't respond. Here's how I like to think of it. When you became a Christian, you looked up and you saw God's face and he asked you if you wanted to live. And you said yes and you lived. And it's not until later, that, that's the part of the story that you remember, that's the part you participate in. But it's not until later that when you start to get some of your family history that you realize that there's a backstory. And your backstory is this. You were lying dead, not dying, but dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. And God swam down and he pulled you to the shore and he breathed new life into you. And you sputtered death from your lungs and you breathed your first breath of air. And as you did that, you looked up into your father's face and he asked you if you wanted to live. Of course You wanted to live. And so you responded to his call and you lived. Do you see why Paul is praising? Do you see why he can't contain himself in these verses? Why he just goes on and on and on talking about the praises of God and talking about the grace of God. He keeps going on and he keeps praising God because he understands that he would still be lying dead on the bottom of the ocean floor if it wasn't for God's merciful and gracious call on his life. I know this is an emotionally charging topic. And I know emotionally speaking, this idea of predestination seems so unfair And you know one of the reasons why it seems so unfair is because we live in the United States in 2007 and we are so individualistic. We have such a performance mentality and we think that we deserve everything, even salvation. 
And when we come with that attitude, we start to question God and we start to say, Why, God? Why are you an electing God? Why are you like this? Why do you choose some people and not others? This seems so unfair. And you know what? God doesn't answer. He doesn't have to. Because He's God and we're not. The only thing He says is in verse 6. That it is in accordance with His good pleasure and His will. It's for His own glory. His choosing has nothing to do with the person. God delights in choosing the foolish because it gives him the most glory. You see, this doctrine of predestination, it's mysterious. It's not logical. And if you try to figure it out and try to intellectualize it, you'll lose the beauty. You'll lose the wonder of the doctrine. But you know what? Asking the question, why doesn't God choose everybody? That's really the wrong question. That's not the question that we should be asking. Remember little Anya that I shared about at the beginning of my sermon? When she gets a little bit older and she starts to understand what's been done for her, do you think she's going to say, I wonder why the Rick family didn't take all the children in the orphanage that day. You think she's going to say that? No. No way. You know what she's going to say? She's going to say, why in the world did they pick me? Why did they pick me? That's the glory. That's the mystery. That's the wonder of this doctrine called predestination. The truth is that God would be perfectly just not to save any of us. None of us deserve eternal life because our sin was so heinous in God's eyes. And so the question is not, why God? Why haven't you saved everyone? But the real question is, why God? Why would you save a poor, wretched sinner like me? Paul knew that was the real question. Do you see that? That was the real question. And it it led him to stand up and give praise and honor and glory to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for his glorious grace. If you look there in verse 6, that's what Paul says. In the doctrine of predestination, grace is really revealed as grace. What is grace? It's simply receiving what we do not deserve. Or another way to put it is grace is receiving God's riches at Christ's expense. And you know what? The only way we receive God's riches is because Jesus Christ came into the world and he died upon a cross and took the penalty of sin that we deserved. Six times in this chapter, we see reference to Jesus. Jesus came to redeem 
the world through his blood. Look at verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. We were in bondage, enslaved to sin. We were slave to sin's penalty, slave to sin's power. We were slaves to condemnation, slaves to God's wrath in anger because of our sin. We were unable outside of Christ to do anything but sin in God's eyes. And yet God purchased us and he didn't purchase or redeem us with perishable things like gold or silver. But he purchased us with the blood of his only son, Jesus Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul can't contain himself. That's why Paul goes on and on. It's the great exchange. God, Christ gets the brunt of all of our sin and disobedience. And we get his perfect record of righteousness. Friends, Christ became poor. So that you could become rich. So that you and I could be called children of God. I know at this point some of you are feeling this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Those two things sit right next to each other in Scripture. They do not contradict but they run alongside one another. Both are true. And that should point us to the mystery, back to the mystery of this doctrine of predestination. And so some of you are feeling this tension and you're saying, well, what do I do? What, I, you know, what is all this about? What do I do if, if I'm not chosen, if I'm not predestined? And friends, the doctrine of predestination is never meant to cause you anxiety or fear over whether or not you can come to Christ. Why? It's because the call of the gospel is for everyone. The call of the gospel is to the whole world. Are you weary this morning? Has the thrill of sin gotten old? Do you feel like you lack the resources in and of yourself to make yourself right before God, then hear Jesus' call to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Because he says to every single one of us this morning, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus has commanded us to come to him. And the one who does will never be cast away. And so don't worry whether or not you're elect or predestined and all that stuff. You've been commanded to come to Christ and put your trust and faith in Him. How do you do that this morning? You come to Christ by acknowledging that you have nothing to offer God but your, your sin. You come to Christ by acknowledging that you, know, you have no good works in and of yourself that would make you acceptable in God's sight. And as you come to God empty-handed, you come to Him 
and you cry out to Him in need and you receive the gift of grace. You receive the, the perfect righteousness of Christ that was secured on the cross. I know some of you um, have a bad taste in your mouth about Calvinism. You hear that word and it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And there are many reasons for that probably. Um, but I believe one of the reasons is, is because you have had negative encounters with people who call themselves Calvinists. And in your encounters with them, they have been arrogant. They have been prideful. And they have been obnoxious. And if that has been your experience this morning, I've got one thing that I want to say to you. And that's this. I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you have been handled in that way and treated that way. Because... I'm even more sorry because I don't understand how people can be prideful and arrogant over something that they had nothing to do with. And I'm also sorry because people that are acting that way have missed the wonder. They've missed the beauty of true Calvinism. I'm also sorry because they have forgotten that they were like that little girl in the orphanage, in the Ukraine, the ones that nobody wanted. But you know what? It's not only the obnoxious Calvinists that have missed that fact. Most Christians miss that fact. You see, in reality, we forget that we were once orphans. We were the ones that no one wanted we were the ones that were hard to look at. And yet God in his grace and mercy called us to be part of his family. Friends, that's the heart of the doctrine of predestination. And it should cause us to fall down on our knees and to worship and praise God for his wonderful grace. And so this morning... What do you say we take a lesson from the Apostle Paul and not let this issue of predestination lead us to arguing, to debating, to division on this campus, but instead, let's let it lead us to singing. Let's let it, let it lead us to sing the praises of God for his glorious grace that he's given us. His children. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and um, I pray that we all would be mindful um, of the incredible things that you have done for us, uh, sending your son to pay the penalty uh, for our sin, the penalty that we deserved. Father, that is an incredible thing and even hard for us to get our minds around. But I pray that it would lead us to worship. It would lead us to praise. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. 
Amen. Go in peace.